Welcome to Trailhead. Uh, flip to Titus chapter 2. I'm going to read. Um, these are our verses for this week. And honestly, not just this week, but um, last week, this week, and the next two weeks. We're sitting in these three verses. I am going to encourage you to memorize these verses. Okay? Uh, your pastor here, just saying, hey, memorize these things. It's not long. Um, write them on a three by five card. You know, write it on your mirror after you take a shower so that when the mirror fogs back up, you can see it, right? Um, put it on your iPhone, your, your desktop, whatever, right? Put it on there. And, um, and the reason is this. If you memorize these verses, I, I guarantee you, you'll get more out of this sermon series. It'll help prepare your heart, because that's really the whole point of the sermon series, to help prepare our heart for Christmas. It's an Advent series where we are preparing our hearts to worship God and, and engage this season well. So uh, let's take a look. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. It's page 998 in the Black Bibles in front of you. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all, unlaw- from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works, the word of the Lord. All right, we are in an Advent series. Um, it is a four-week series because the four weeks leading up to Advent is called the Advent season. The word Advent means the appearing or the breaking in or the coming of something important, something momentous, right? And so what we're doing is preparing our hearts to celebrate uh, the advent of God into the created world. The Creator became one of His creation, right? I mean, God became man and dwelt among us. And, and, um, and so we're talking about um, how we prepare our hearts and really what the purpose of Christmas is. Before we dig in, though, I do want to take a moment. We have a lot to celebrate this week. And one of the things is that yesterday we hosted an event called Affordable Christmas. Um, any of you there yesterday? That's right. Um, a lot of you were. I saw you. Um, what an incredible day, right? What an incredible day. We pull off this event every year, um, and, and it's this huge event. It takes a tremendous amount of energy, but it's, it's a very simple way, but a profound way for us just to reach out and share with people the love of Christ. I mean, that's the bottom line is we have a generous God who showed grace to us, and we are moved as a result of that, of that receiving that grace, receiving that generosity, to, to share that love in practical ways with other people. I, one, of, one of my great joys at Affordable Christmas is I get the opportunity of walking around and just talking to people. Um, so I talk to people who are serving. I talk to people that are being served. And, and in that way, I really am able to take the pulse of, of the day, right? To get a feel for, for what's really going on and, and, and just kind of experience the excitement with folks. I, I had a great opportunity to talk with a, uh, an older gentleman that was there, and, and um, he was sharing with me that um, uh, he, he had lost his job and, and he had been laid off, and, and he was having a very hard time finding work. He was having a hard time finding a job to replace it, and as a result, they were dealing with a lot of financial difficulty. And he looked at me, and he's like, he's like you know what it's like as a man when you can't provide for your family? I know exactly what he means. It's that sense of weight, that sense of, and a lot of people that deal with extended periods of unemployment deal with that, that sense of, of um, like worthlessness and, and um, if you can't produce something. You know what I'm saying? Like there's just that, and, and, he, and he just looked at me and he said, thank you because you're equipping me to, uh, to provide a Christmas for my family. 
And, uh, and I was like, man, what a privilege. I'm glad to be able to do it, and we're glad to be able to do it. And, um, and then he went on, I mean, honestly, to talk about um, how thankful he was to God, which is awesome, because that's kind of the whole point. What we're doing in practical ways is we're, we're showing the love of Christ, even as we're telling people about the love of Christ, right? It's, it's both in word and in deed, and, and, and what a great opportunity. Um, I would like to take a moment and um, recognize some leaders. Um, leaders lead, that's what they do, that's why they're called leaders, and what that means is they kind of go out in advance, right, and they prepare things. And generally, they do a lot of work before you ever show up um, so that you can show up. And what ends up happening is they build a platform for you to show up and serve in so that you can get the benefit and the joy of serving, right? It's not that you're not working, you're working very hard and they give you a venue to do that. They've just done all the preliminary work to give you that place to do that. And so I want to recognize our leaders because they, um, they worked anywhere from, from weeks to months and potentially a full year in advance. Uh, Jen, are you still here? Jen was here last service. I didn't figure she'd be back. She hates it when I call her out. Jen Harshi, I want to highlight her. She has led this event for the last three years. It is a year of preparation for her, and that's not an exaggeration. It's six months of, of serious preparation and four months of intense preparation to pull this thing off, and, uh, and, and so very thankful to Jen. If you were at the, uh, the leadership, uh, or if you were on one of the leadership teams, if you led out in the kids or the, the food or the... Um, I want you to stand. So if you led at the Affordable Christmas event, if you led a team, do we have any of the leaders here? We had quite a few of them uh, at the last service. Thank, now stand. Yes. Some of them hate this part. Sorry. Uh, kind of. Nope. Stand. Um, <laughs> leaders, um, these are folks that, again, have, have provided opportunities for us to come alongside and serve. And the reason I want to highlight them is, is, is not because, like, we do love these guys and we're thankful for these guys, um, but we're thankful for the grace of God in their lives because as they lead, it gives us opportunity to enter into that grace and experience more of the joy. Okay, so while they're standing, I want to share this. Yesterday, we served 63 families. That's huge, you guys. 63 families were equipped, um, were served. They had their photos taken. They had their family portraits, some of them for the first time. Um, they, they, were, they were given a, a, an opportunity to sit down and share a meal. They were given an opportunity to shop for their families. Um, and they were given Bibles and Jesus Storybook Bibles and, and 63 families, 172 kids were represented in those families. That's a huge win. And uh, I just want to <laughs> praise God for that. All right, you guys can sit. Anna, you can sit. Anna, thanks for putting up with me. Um, that's a huge win. And as we clap, obviously, we're clapping out of joy. This isn't like, yay, trailhead. Um, this is us basically saying, yay, grace, right? I mean, this is praise God, because it's God that, that moves our hearts so that we can sacrifice for others in joy, so that we're not doing it to look, hey, how great we are, or, man, I feel better about myself, I put in my sacrifice or whatever. It's about us simply saying, um, man, I got to share with others my gratitude, which means I'm ready to keep sharing, Right? That, that, what, a, what a great privilege. So thank, thank you for all of you who, who contributed and served. Um, it, was, it was a tremendous success um, yesterday. All right, last week we started a new sermon series called Advent where we looked at the broader context of Christmas. What we're doing is taking a look at the whole Advent story and saying, how does Christmas fit into the broader story so that we understand the meaning behind Christmas and how we're supposed to engage Christmas, right? How we're supposed to move forward. What is the true story of Advent? Last week, I shared this diagram 
um, which very simply is my way of trying to help you have a memorable structure for understanding the broader story, uh, the true story of Advent, or if you want to call it the true story of, of human history. Um, this is the big story that God is telling, and our little stories fit into this, right? And in fact, if we were to figure it out, we would find that this same story arc replicates itself in our story over and over and over again. And it begins with God creating. God created that first down arrow, God created, right? God created everything. He created it good. He created it out of the overflow of His character, out of the overflow of His beauty, out of the overflow of His goodness. And He created it in its, all of its variety, all of its beauty, um, and He said, it is good. And, and after He created on the sixth day, He stepped back after He created mankind to be stewards of that creation, the ones who would steward it for God's glory and for our good. He said, it is good. Behold, it is very good. That was a theological statement basically saying that there is a shalom to the created order, a peace, a harmony, right? The Creator tuned everything to Himself so that every piece created a glorious harmony, a beautiful hum that would ultimately sing the glory of God. All the moving pieces, all of the different things came together, and while they were diverse and different, they all were in the same purpose. They flowed in the same vein. So when we talk about the shalom of God, we're talking about the peace of God, the balance of God, the wholeness of God, the goodness of God was reflected in all of the myriad pieces of creation. And there was in every relationship a balance and a health and a wholeness. The next stage, the X, is mankind's rebellion against God, humanity's cosmic treason against His Creator. We basically looked to God and we said to God, you are no longer the center, we'll be the center. Your glory will no longer be what we revolve around. We will now revolve around our glory. It's not going to be about your kingdom. It's going to be about our kingdom. We will be equal to God. That's the actual language. What we're basically saying is is we're of equal importance, equal glory, equal uh, um, power. And and in so doing, what we did is, is we knocked the entire created order off axis. There was a brokenness introduced into the created order because there was a shalom of God that was broken. We rejected God, and in rejecting God, we rejected that peace. And so the shalom of God was lost, that peace, that balance, that harmony between all the moving parts. It's not that it was completely lost. There's still a balance to the created order. But what we see is all the key relationships. And when you look at Genesis 3, you see this unfolding in in really a tragic um, way. But, But mankind lost harmony with himself, right? Every one of you know what that's like. We all have that inner critic, that voice in the back of our head that condemns us, that tells us we're not smart enough, we're not beautiful enough, we're not strong enough, we're not womanly enough, we're not manly enough, we're not healthy enough, we're not, you know, whatever it is, it's that constant attack. We also know the, the, the tragic effects of shame and of guilt, that need to hide. There are things about us that we just, we, we are so, we, we just know they're broken. We know that there are things that are, that are just ugly, and so we do everything we can to hide them, right? All of that was introduced at, the, at our rejection of the shalom of God, right? We, we lost shalom with ourselves. We lost the balance with ourselves. We lost it with God. God was no longer a loving, inviting, glorious Father. He was now a judge. We no longer easily moved and just joyfully moved to trust Him. We now distrust Him, honestly, and we struggle with that every day, don't we? We don't trust Him enough to, to really believe that He's going to tell a better story for our lives than we would tell for ourselves. We don't trust His power. We don't trust His goodness. We have to continually try to re, you know, build our faith and strength. Why? Because we've lost shalom. What once became it was so natural and simply flowed out of the relationship is now alien to us, right? The loss of shalom with God, He became threatening instead of inviting. He became 
um, uh, uh, his, his authority um, became scary to us instead of inviting, right? Uh, we lost shalom with, with each other. People became competitors instead of companions. And we see that in the, in the earliest family, right? Automatically, Adam and Eve, man, all they had known up to that point was, was some, some, some pretty sweet times, right? Um, they were, they were uh, naked and happy. They worked all day long. They worked very hard, and, and they were really always glad to see each other, right? They were, there was never a competition. There was never a tension of, I'm better than you, or, or man, you're not looking out for my best interests, or there was, there was always a self-giving instead of a self-protecting. Well, after that, man, the closest form of, of human community, the family, became the demonstration of the brokenness that came from the loss of that community, right? People became competitors. So husbands and wives now are competing. They're competing for recognition. They're competing for who's serving each other more. They're, they're competing for, for, you know, am I loving you more than you're loving me? Or, you, you know, am I taking care of you? Like there's this, all of a sudden there's this tension that comes in. And we see it in the kids too. Kids are, are, are what used to, was designed to be a joyful, worshipful, uh, experience raising children is now defined really by, by warfare and conflict and difficulty because we have to teach our kids. I mean, the single greatest task of a parent, is it not, is to teach a child that they're not the center of the universe, right? I mean, there's, they just come out of the womb like, yeah, of course I'm the center of the universe, right? My glory is the greatest, right? Feed me, take care of me. And if you don't address that, you're going to end up with a 22-year-old living in your basement that's still convinced they're the center of the universe, right? That doesn't naturally change. And, and, but what we see is that's the loss of the loss of shalom, right? There's now conflict in human relationship. There's competition instead of companionship. And we see it also in, in man's relationship with the created order. God had designed the, the created order to submit joyfully and, and eagerly to the hand of the steward. Well, now we see the created order responding, but responding um, unwillingly, and even at times rising up violently against us a loss of shalom between us and, and the created order, right? So that was the effect of the rebellion, that X is, is a profound, has a profound impact on the storyline. If that was the end of the story, it would be a tragedy. There would be nothing good that came out of that because all we would do is, is ultimately um, each one of us would be born into a world where we had desires that could never be fulfilled because our desires are for the shalom of God. That's what we were created for. We were created to experience God at the center, the outpouring of His goodness in a, in a love-filled relationship with Him. But without, if that was the end of the story, we would all be born with hopelessness because there'd be no ability to fulfill the deepest desires of our hearts. And so we would continually turn to things that aren't God to be God for us, to do for us what only God can do. And we would live lives of quiet desperation because we would never find in those things the fulfillment that only God can give. The problem is, or the, the good news is that God did not leave us in that state of hopelessness. He immediately promised that He would send a Savior, that He would send a Redeemer, that He would send a hero who would step into the story, that would ultimately retell the story as a story of redemption and restoration instead of a story of loss. And that's that long arrow, is the season of promise, as God gives a series of covenants that reiterate the promise that He will send a Savior, that He will send a hero. And of course, the cross is the coming of that hero. That's what we call the first advent. It's Christmas, when God becomes man. When God um, says, it is now time, the fullness of time has come, I will send the Savior. The hero of the story will break into the story and, uh, and effectively um, um, produce grace, right? Verse 11 of our chapter, Titus 2.11, that's what it's talking about. When it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, it's talking about Christmas. 
is talking about the first advent. That, that, that verb, has appeared, is in the aorist tense, which means that it's, a, it's an action, a single action that occurred in the past that has ongoing effects. So it's not talking about how God, you know, God was gracious in the past or God generally has an attitude of grace toward us in the past. It's saying there was a specific point in time when the grace of God broke in to our story, to the human story. It's talking about the birth of Christ. It's talking about Christmas, right? And, and I love the way it's described. For the grace of God appeared. The grace of God broke in. See, when Jesus was born, it was, in fact, grace. Grace is undeserved favor. Grace is unearned merit, right? It's somebody crediting to us a value that we did not earn or claim on our own. We, we couldn't earn it, right? The grace of God. His life was grace. You know why? Because he lived the life we should have lived. He lived in perfect submission to his father. And even though he was rejected by the people around him and abused by the people around him, he never dishonored his father. He never acted out of anything but love. He lived the life we should have lived. That's grace. He died the death we deserve to die. He was our substitute in judgment. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He, he, he became our substitute. That's grace. Right? He, he, he took our sin, even though He didn't deserve it. He lived a perfect life. He became the embodiment of our sin so that He could suffer in our place and pay a price we couldn't pay. When He rose again a new life, He didn't just do it for Himself to vindicate His own name. He did it for us that we might be raised again as His brothers, as His sisters, to prove that the payment was absolutely complete. It's grace. And as those who believe in Christ, we are now covered with an alien righteousness. We're now covered with Christ's merit, not ours. With God's glory, not ours. He took our shame. He gives us His glory. It's grace, free, undeserved. Grace is never free. There's always a cost. But the beauty is that God paid the cost so that we could get the benefit, right? So the grace of God appeared bringing salvation to everyone so that there could be an offer of salvation to everyone. Every human has the opportunity of stepping into the benefit of the work of Christ. Every human has the opportunity to believe. We rejected trust in Christ at the beginning of our story, at the great rebellion, the cosmic trees, and we said, you will no longer be the center. Jesus gives us the opportunity to once again say, your glory will be the center. I will trust you. So the promise comes to fruition where he's, the promise comes and it says, no longer look forward to a Savior. It's saying, look back because you had a Savior and you have one whose work continues to be efficacious, continues to be of benefit to those who believe, right? So that's the first advent. And what it does is it sets us longing for the second advent. That's verse 13. Waiting for, eagerly anticipating, hoping for our blessed hope. A blessed hope is a hope that's pregnant with every other hope. It's the fulfillment of every human hope. So it doesn't make our hope less. It actually makes it greater because it promises not only to fulfill our temporary hopes, but to give us our deepest longings, right? So we're waiting for this thing that is going to meet our deepest longings. What is it? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's going to be a second advent, a second breaking in. The first one was the coming of grace. The second one is the coming of glory. 
At the beginning of the story, God's glory was the center of the, the created universe. Everything revolved around that glory. God got his glory. We got our joy. And what he's saying is at the end of the story, God's glory will once again be at the center of the created order. And my shalom will be reestablished in every relationship. You will no longer know shame and guilt and self-condemnation. You will no longer be in competition with others. You will be companions with others. You will no longer fear God's presence. You will long for God's presence because you will yearn for the outpouring of His love and His goodness. And the created order will once again submit itself joyfully to your hand because the shalom of God will be reestablished. Redemption and restoration, two advents. In between is where we are. This period that's spoken of in verse 12. At the end of verse 12, it says that God is doing these things. Why? So that we we can be trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. That's the short arrow. In the present age. This is our part of the story between the two advents. And in this present age, God is doing something, but He's doing it in the tension of the two advents. Think about it. What we have between the two advents is an already, not yet tension. Victory's already been won, but we have not yet fully experienced the benefit of that victory, right? Our sin has been completely paid for, but we haven't yet been fully delivered from the presence or the power of our sin. We're progressively, but we, not fully, right? Already, God has already um, satisfied everything necessary to reestablish shalom in every relationship, but we don't yet see the shalom of God fully restored, right? It's this already not yet. It's already one not fully experienced period. And during this period of time, God is changing us. He's using the tension to bring about change. In verse 12, he says, the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So during this period of time, As we look back to Christmas, as we look back to the gospel, the work of Jesus, and we look forward to the coming, we're being trained. That word trained is the Greek word paideia, from which we get our English word pedagogy. And most of you are like, Steve, that did not help, right? Um, I have 17 years of education background. I was a teacher and a principal. I learned a lot about pedagogy. It's the study and the art of education. Okay, so if you're a teacher, you know what that word means, right? Um, It's the study and the art of education. So what it's saying is that that God is teaching us. God is training us. God is schooling us for a goal, a goal that we might change. We're in the school of God, and God uses the tension of this age to teach us things that we could not learn any other way. What He wants to do is teach us to renounce and to become, right? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions so that we might be self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age, right? And God is progressively changing us. Now, those three phrases, so that we might become self-controlled, upright, and godly. We're talking about three aspects of how we experience shalom. Self-controlled, We're going to talk about that today. That's shalom with self. Upright is how we relate to others so that we love them instead of use them. Godly is how we relate to God. Renewed shalom with God so that we can actually operate with Him in joy instead of guilt or fear. We're going to talk about those three things over the next three weeks. Today is is the self-controlled piece, the freedom piece, right? So he's teaching us to renounce ungodliness, 
and worldly desires so that we might become self-controlled. It's the same thing he's focusing on in verse 14 at the end where he says, who gave himself, Jesus, gave himself for our, to redeem us, right? So he gave himself on the cross. He gave himself through sacrifice to redeem us, to pay the price, to buy us back. Um, but he did it so that he might buy us back from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Change us so that we are zealous for good works. He's changing us. All right, now I want to stop here for a moment and just recognize the fact that for many of you, the language of this chapter is going to be somewhat threatening, maybe somewhat alienating, because it's going to sound like a lot of restrictions. It's going to sound like something that is just not very fun, right? Um, Basically, what we're seeing is that God is working to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to make us a people who are zealous for, uh, for good works. Um. Some of you have possibly had, and many of you I know have, had your experience of uh, what we're describing here shaped by moralistic Christianity. Moralistic Christianity is not the gospel. Moralistic Christianity is, in fact, an imposter that competes with the gospel and can often become a false gospel. Moralistic Christianity basically says this, you better start behaving right so that God will like you more. Moralistic Christianity is all about changing your behavior getting you to act right, look right, speak right, because that's what Christians do, right? So basically, it would be the message of, okay, yeah, Jesus died for your sins so that you could be, so you can go to heaven. Now you need to get down to the hard work of honoring Him. Now you need to get down to the hard work of becoming religious and behave better and change so that God will be pleased with you. And if you don't, He actually, in fact, might not like you as much. God may not be as pleased with you. He may not like you. In fact, He may even reject you, Right? Moralistic Christianity is all about behavior change. And so what it ends up happening is that it's all about the don'ts. It's all about the don'ts, right? Don't do this. Don't do that. Different, different tribes are going to have different don'ts, <laughs> right? Some of you come from different, very different backgrounds, and you've experienced like the, the, the Southern Baptist don'ts are going to be very different than the Pentecostal don'ts, going to be very different from the Lutheran don'ts, very different, you know, but we all, and I'm not saying these groups in themselves preach a false gospel. I'm saying that we often misinterpret the gospel and can subtly misrepresent it, right? And so what ends up happening comes about the don'ts, right? Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go out with girls who do, right? You avoid all the, all the don'ts, right? And that's how you become godly, that's how you become a good follower of Jesus. You, you stop wearing those clothes and stop using that language. And you start using Christian. This is a, as a side. I, it drives me nuts, right? Stop using bad language. Uh, instead, start using Christian bad language. You know what I'm saying? Like, seriously, don't say that word. That one's off limits. But you can say, dang it, right? Gosh, dang it. Who is gosh? And what do you want him to dang? What does that even mean? You know what I'm saying? Like, we do this. It's like, somehow I'm more sanctified and holy if I replace, like, those are the, those are the off-limits ones, and I'm going to go. It's all moralism. It's foolishness, right? But Steve, doesn't language, isn't it important? Absolutely, it's important. The Bible says we need to use all of our language to edify, build up, and love. That's what we need to use our language for. It doesn't mean that you're going to create a list, right? That's, we always create lists. If you're the don't person, you're always creating lists, these are the things you don't do. These are the things you don't say. These are the things you can't wear. These are the things that you, you're always looking for the don'ts. Because if you, the whole point is you're measured up by what you don't do. You guys, this passage is not about the don'ts. This passage is not about the restrictions. 
This passage is about freedom. In verse 12, it says that, that God is leading us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Why? So that we can live self-controlled lives. Now, that doesn't sound very fun, and it doesn't sound very inviting. Hey, Steve, what are you doing this weekend? I'm going to be self-controlled. <laughs> Would you like to join me? <laughs> Woo, party, right? Um, I am renouncing worldly passions and ungodliness. Would you like to join me? Ah. <sighs> That doesn't sound very fun, right? That sounds like you're going to go disappear into a closet, right? It's like you're going to go someplace and, and you're going to beat yourself up and you're going to come out like feeling like horrible, but man, I feel so great about myself. I beat myself up wonderfully this weekend, right? That's not what this is about at all, right? People are going to think you're a freak if you talk like that, by the way. Um, because we're not, here's the thing, we're not talking about becoming more religious. That's not what this is about. This isn't about moral change first and foremost, It's about heart change. It's about freedom. It's about experiencing more of what you already have in Christ. Think about it. The passage says that we will be trained to renounce worldly passions. It doesn't say we'll be trained to renounce passions. There's nothing wrong with passions. And in fact, we were wired to be passionate. Passionate about about love and passionate about jobs and passionate about achievement and passionate about sex and passionate about all of these wonderful things that God gave us. The question is not whether you'll have passions, but whether or not those passions will be governed by a system where God's glory is at the center or your glory is at the center. We're talking about worldly passions. We're talking about passions that are governed by the system. When the scripture talks about worldliness, It's talking about the system we created after our rebellion. When we lost the shalom of God, we created a system where where we could live without God, where God was no longer the center. We could try to find things that only God could give, but we were trying to find it in things that weren't God. So it rules out God at the center and puts us at the center. That's a worldly way of approaching life. It is an unsatisfying way. It is a disappointing way. It is a dead-end way. And what, what, what God is saying is, I want to free you from worldly passions, the kind of passions that are driven by lies, the kind of passions that drive you but never fulfill you, the kind of passions that will inflame you with appetite without ever giving you something substantial to eat that continually leave you unsatisfied. I want to free you from worldly passions. So he's training us to reject the passions controlled by a fallen world that don't satisfy and only enslave. In verse 14, where it says he's redeeming us so that we might become zealous for good works. You guys, we're all zealous for works. The question is, what kind of works are you zealous for? Are you zealous for good works or dead works? See, God wants us to be zealous for good works, the kind of works that produce life, the kind that that actually produce something substantial and worthwhile. The, the kind of thing that, that glorifies God and frees us to joy. Most of us, honestly, are, are motivated and zealous for dead works. We're zealous for our hobbies. We're potentially zealous for good things like our families or our jobs. But we take those good things and we turn them into ultimate things. 
We take those good gifts and then we look to them and we say to those gifts, you will now not just be a gift, you're going to be God. You're going to meet my deepest needs. And in so doing, we, we turn that into a dead work because it can't give us life. We're all zealous for works. What God wants to do is free us to be zealous for good works, the kind of works that actually fulfill and build and free kind of produce greater joy and deeper life. You guys, God is not enslaving us. He's freeing us. The reason He's schooling us right now is that we might be changed, not so that we'll become more submissive, like, man, you better obey my rules, but so that we might become more free. Does that involve submission? Absolutely. Absolutely. See, we're talking about something that is... Um, ultimately about uh, who rules us, right? Here's the thing, yes, I want you to catch. We're all ruled by our desires. We have no choice. We are all ruled by our desires. God wants to free our desires, right? And that's why we're talking about self-control. God wants to free us to self-control, not self-rule. Those are two fundamentally different things. We are passionate about self-rule. And in fact, most of us define freedom as self-rule. Self-rule says, I'm the boss, I don't need your authority. Self-rule says, I'm the teacher. I don't need you to teach me. Self-rule says, uh, I am <laughs> the rule maker. I get to define what is good and bad. I get to define what's fulfilling and what's not. I get to define for me what's going to make me happy, right? And as my daughter used to say when she was three years old and pretty much never stopped saying, you're not the boss of me, right? It's this hard attitude that basically looks at God and says, I don't need your authority. It's threatening to me. It's alienating to me. It's demeaning to me. I want to be equal to God. I want to be my own authority, right? That's self-rule. You guys, here's the thing. You can opt for self-rule, but you can't opt to rule your own passions, Self-rule leads to slavery because when we choose to rule ourselves, we are choosing ultimately to follow our passions. (laughs) Some people make that sound so glorious. Just follow your passions. You really have to ask what's leading your passions, right? Because whatever's leading your passions is your master. Whatever's leading your passions has enslaved you. Following your passions is not freedom. The question isn't, do I get to do what I want to do? The question is, do I want to do what will give me life? The question isn't, do I get to follow my passions? The question is, do my passions lead me to life and goodness and glory and beauty and freedom? Freedom is not about doing whatever you want to do. It's about wanting what is right and good. So what ends up happening is we become enslaved. We become enslaved to our hobbies, our experiences, our jobs, our well-being, the well-being of our families. We take good things and we turn them into ultimate things. We become enslaved to these things, looking for them to give us what they simply cannot give, sex, money, family, jobs. We look to the creation to fill the role of the creator, and it never can. So freedom is not getting to do whatever you want. It is wanting to do what is right. If freedom, we're getting to do whatever you want, the freest person on the face of the earth would be a drug addict with an unlimited supply of drugs. Would that person not become the happiest person on the face of the earth? 
If you've ever been around drug addiction, you know. What addiction does is it inflames your appetite without ever giving you satisfaction. The joy of indulgence diminishes the more you indulge. And I don't care whether your addiction is to drugs or pornography or to relationships or approval. The same rule applies. When you are enslaved to your passions, your passions will give you diminishing returns to the point where you are simply an empty shell driven, driven by appetites that cannot be satisfied. And you will be indulging, you will be, you will be gluttonously feeding yourself on whatever it is that you so much want, and you will never be satisfied. During the Industrial Revolution, they used to bring people into the cities because they had so much need in the factories, and it was all about profit. And they would take people that were working in these slums, and they would feed them the byproduct of the, um, of the, the food processing. And often, that was, that was food stuff that was anywhere from 50 to 80% sawdust. And people would ravenously be feeding themselves while they were starving. The more they ate, it would fill their belly, but it would give them zero nourishment. That is a beautiful picture for what we're talking about. People ravenously feeding themselves on things that simply cannot satisfy. That is not freedom. That is slavery. And it is foolishness. God does not want to enslave us. He wants to free us because He wants to change our hearts so that we come to desire what is truly satisfying and then give us our heart's desire. You guys, God is freeing you. He is teaching you to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires to live self-controlled lives, that you might be zealous for good works. He is freeing you from slavery that you might desire what's truly fulfilling. He doesn't want to diminish your passions. He wants to increase them. But He wants to increase your passion for what's truly satisfying. To free you to greater joy and greater delight. One thing I want to, as we're kind of coming to the end of this, I want you to catch this. In verse 12, He says, training us to renounce ungodliness. There's a partnership here. There's a cooperative effort. He's training us to renounce couldn't God just change our hearts so that we did renounce? Couldn't He just rip out the old desires and put in new desires? Absolutely He could. Why doesn't He? Why instead does He come alongside of us like a teacher and say, I'm going to train you to renounce? Because He doesn't just want to reshape our desires. He wants to reshape our will. What happened in the Great Rebellion is that we willed to reject God. And we said, you are not going to be satisfying. You will not be the center. I will be the center. I will be my own boss. For us to fully experience, to move into a greater experience of what we've already gained in Christ, we have to learn to submit to Christ. We have to learn to trust Him again. To say to God, I trust that you are more satisfying. I trust that you will take care of me. I trust that you're going to tell a better story for my life than I would tell for myself. God wants to reform our will even as He reforms our desires. And that requires us to make a walk of faith, pursuing the change that He is training us to embrace. It's a cooperative effort where we work with Him in the process of experiencing more. Now catch this, we're not earning more. You can't earn more than was already given to you in Christ, but you can experience more. You have everything given to you in Christ by grace. God, He won it all. But I guarantee you, you are presently experiencing, and I'm presently experiencing very little of what I've already got in Christ. 
He wants you to experience more, and that's going to come from having your hearts changed to embrace and experience more, to trust God as God. All right, as you know, um, there's something else I want to, want to take a little bit of time and celebrate. I want to tie it in here. As you guys know, we are kicking off our three-year capital campaign. We spent the last couple of months actually talking about it. We did our Get Greedy uh, sermon series. We were talking about how when we get greedy for the right things, it frees our hearts from greed for the wrong things. We spent five weeks preaching through 2 Corinthians um, 8 and 9 and looked at principles of, of giving and principles of how ultimately God changes our hearts. And that was one of the central points we made was that what we do with our, with, our, with our money not only shows us our hearts, but shapes our hearts, right? It shows us our hearts. If I look at your checkbook, I'm going to know what you value. I can see what you spend your money on because you're going to spend money on things that you love, right? And so if we look carefully at where you spend money, it's going to show you your heart. Here's the thing, though, is that by spending your money, you actually shape your heart. It not only shows you your heart, but it shapes your heart. So it shows you how you valued things in the past, and it can shape what you value in the future, which makes it spiritual. What we do with our money is nothing if it isn't spiritual. It shapes our hearts. And when we talk about it shaping our hearts, we're talking about it shaping our desires, which means God's going to use it in this process of transforming us and freeing us. What we do with our money is important because it's part of our partnership with the work of God in our lives. Money is either going to be a slave master or a servant. The only two options. Jesus said that. Jesus was talking to his disciples and he said, um, you, know, you can't serve two masters. It's either going to be um, God or money. Mammon or, or, or God, right? Mammon was the terminology that was wealth, right? You're going to serve either God or money. You're either going to, it's either going to be your master or your servant, which means you're either going to be an owner, which means you're a slave, or you're going to be a steward, which means that you're free, right? Money's either going to be your slave, master, or servant. So, so we get to, uh, in a, the use of our money, cooperate with the work of God in our own hearts. So today, what I want to celebrate, I get to announce the total amount we've pledged as a church as a church, we've come together and we've been collecting pledges toward our three-year capital campaign, and I want to share with you today how much we as Trailhead Church have, have committed to this, and I'm incredibly excited to do this. Um, there's a lot to celebrate and there's a lot of joy, but I want you to know what I'm most excited about. What I'm most excited about is not the money. That's exciting because it's going to equip our church to move forward on mission. But you want to know what I'm, what I'm most excited about is the, the story after story after story that I have had the opportunity to hear of people's hearts being changed through this process. Stories of grace. People that, that have, have experienced a greater amount of grace and a greater level of freedom in their lives as, as they have engaged this process, as their hearts have been shaped by them simply coming humbly to God and submitting to God. I have been humbled as I have interacted with person after person. You guys, there are so many stories I could tell you, and they're, they're humbling to me. Like I had one person who gave at that point, it was the biggest gift. It was a, it was a huge gift. And I went and thanked them and, and um, you know, just expressed my gratitude. And they came back and, and several weeks later, almost doubled their gift. In fact, I actually saw that on the response cards. Numerous times, people would write a number on, on the, the pledge card, and they go back and scratch it out and put a bigger number. You know why that makes me happy? Yeah, because there's more money. No, it... it it makes me happy because what that tells me is people are moving from, I'd like to give to this, to how much can I give to this? 
They're going from, what is it comfortable for me to give, which is an ownership question, to God, how much can I give, which is a stewardship question. No longer trusting how much they have in the bank account, but trusting the God of the bank account. Does that make sense? They're, they're moving from owner to steward. That's a heart change, not just a financial change. And these people are coming to me, and here, I want you to catch this. They're thanking me for giving them an opportunity to give money. That doesn't make any sense unless you get grace. What they're saying is God's doing something in my heart through this process that's more valuable than the money I'm giving up. And in fact, I'm so thankful that I'm given the opportunity to do it. That's humbling to me, right? That really is. Um, God is doing something, you guys. God is doing something in our church. I've got, I told you all along, the goal of this campaign is not just to get us a building. We do believe we need to get a building, a permanent place to meet, because that's going to allow us to put roots down into this community so that we can grow in gospel mission to this community, right? We believe that's important. We believe that's what God's telling us to prepare for. But my goal is not just to get us a building. My goal is that we might be the right type of church that move into that building. We don't want to just move into a building and then be like, yay, high five, we're so great, and then circle the wagons and die. (laughs) I want us to be a, a people that are undone by grace. I want us to be a people that are overflowing with generosity and with joy. We're drunk on grace. And we're celebrating the life that we have that God's given us. We are being transformed to experience more of the beauty of what God has given us. You guys, I want us to be the right people because as we become the right people, God will equip us to continue to have an impact to move forward on mission. God will get the glory, we'll get the joy, and more people will come to know the joy that we're experiencing ourselves. And I believe God's using this process to help shape that in us. So I'm incredibly thankful. I want to invite right now SJ up here. SJ is, um, was our, our the, is currently, has been and is the, the leader. I told you guys, leaders are the people that kind of do all the groundwork, kind of behind the scenes. They put a lot of time, effort, energy into things so that they can give you a platform to be involved. Um, this guy's done a tremendous amount of work on our capital campaign and, and will <laughs> for the next three years. Um, and... Uh, you know, I, I wanted to call him the, uh, the, the, the chairman uh, or the chairperson. He didn't like that. He thought it sounded too 90s. So we came up with, uh, we decided to call him the uh, strategic allied commander. Supreme allied. Yeah. I prefer. Supreme. Yeah. Uh, like the pizza. <laughs> Give a guy a mic. Um <laughs> Uh, so, SJ, our strategic allied commander of um, our capital campaign, I wanted to say thank you to him, and I want to give him an opportunity to invite the leaders that have really contributed to this process and have him share a few thoughts on this process as well. Thanks, Steve. Would the folks that were part of the uh, capital campaign team uh, come up? I want to recognize you guys um, for your efforts. Come on up. Stand up here. Um, while they are coming up, and some of them were a part of the first service and, and couldn't uh, and stay for the second. Um, I, going off script briefly, uh, just to talk a little bit about this process for me. Um, it has been a learning experience. Um, God has uh, been doing a lot in my heart. Um, as some of you know, I have a bit of a control idol, um, a bit of a, um, an approval idol. Um, and so um, when I got tasked with this project, I thought, this is going to be the SJ show. I'm going to have a lot... 
Turn that cell phone off. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, I've got the mic. Um, so there you go. The SJ show. So um, long story short, I, um, I had a lot of anxiety. That's something that's a struggle for me. Um, and um, so... I, uh, I really wanted to not only, you know, raise the $550,000 that we were trying to raise, but I really wanted it to be on, on me. I wanted it to be because of how good I am. And about midway through the process, God broke me of that. Mm. Um, and um, and I, I started having a lot of anxiety about it and, and really struggling. And <clears throat> so uh, what ended up happening was that God revealed to me... Um, through prayer and through um, some wise folks at this church, uh, that it really isn't about what I raise, in, in or, or what this church raises. Actually, um, it really is about the heart change that Steve was talking about, and um, and it didn't matter if we didn't raise the five hundred fifty thousand dollars. It just doesn't matter, and um, we need to trust him. That he is much more interested in the hearts of the people at this church, and the people in this community, and mine too. Like, he was interested in my heart and um, wanted to see change there. So, um, around that time uh, is when our campaign team really started, it felt like the spirit was really kind of speaking into us, and that's about the time that we uh, came upon this idea, this theme of being rooted in grace, growing in gospel mission as the theme for our campaign. Um, Rooted in grace because that's who we are. Um, that defines who we are. We are a people that are rooted in needing the grace of Jesus. We are a people that are rooted in needing a Savior. We're broken, and we need help. We're messed up, and we need a Savior. And then growing in gospel mission, because we don't want to just rest in that place of, okay, we're saved, um, but now we want to move forward um, with that with that mission, with that gospel. So, um, so this is, these are uh, some of the members of the campaign team. Uh, my wonderful wife, Emily, uh, Chad Stuhlmeyer, uh, Craig Huffstedler, Jake Garrett, and Dan Free are, uh, are some of the members of the campaign team. Um, there, there are some others, too, that were at the first service, uh, Kara Garrett and Sarah Faye Stuhlmeyer and, uh, and Skip and uh, Kate Johnston, Clint Maple. Um, so um, with that, I will cede the mic. Okay. And we will do this big reveal. All so. right. Honestly, you guys, that, you know, what SJ's talking about there, his movement, that's the sort of stuff I'm talking about. Because, you know, when we started working together, I knew SJ was going to put together a quality campaign. I knew he was going to put a lot of effort into making it look good, that it would be professional, that we wouldn't look like a bunch of hokey people, that it would be, you know, and that he was going to do his best to help us succeed. And what I love about that was there was a process in which he moved from being like, we're going to do this thing to God's going to get glorified in this thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, like what he just shared there, that's very significant. So what I want to do is these guys over here have helped us lead through the first stage of the campaign. And um, you guys come over to the middle. This is one of the challenges of our space. I know some of you do not have a great view. Um, these guys are going to actually help us reveal what we have pledged. Um, and, um, and, uh, and, and we're going to do it in a dramatic fashion because we like drama here. And... Um, and so we're going to reveal one number at a time. And I'm going to, if you can't see it, don't worry, I'll tell you what it is. All right, we're going to begin down here. Dan, we have raised at this point at least $5. Yes. Yes. All right, Jake, um, that's $95. So we're up to $95. That's awesome. Craig, we're up to $595. 
Sweet. Um, there we go. We're at $8,595, Emily. We are at $68,595. Remember, our goal was $550,000. What's the last number? That's a six. I mean, seriously, guys, this is, um, this is awesome. We have at this point pledged $668,595. Um, praise God. Yeah, we wanted to make sure he didn't have that upside down. Otherwise, be like, 900000 um, which I'm actually that way about the six. Um, so $668,595, and that's through the generosity of our people, the movement of God in this church. That's a tremendous outpouring of generosity. Um, so yay, um, yay for the grace of God and honestly for um, what God is doing. All right, you guys, thank you. You can go back and yes, you can, yes. You must, you must see the light. <laughs> no mic for you. Um, you guys, I am incredibly excited. I mean, I can't, God has undone my heart in some beautiful ways through this. Um, part of it was just me getting excited about giving again and, and then just watching people get excited. I am excited for us, what God is doing in and through us. And I want to take a moment, speak to those of you who haven't given to the campaign. Um, I want to invite you to join us. Um, here's the thing. When you give, you're going to be equipping this church to move forward on mission, helping us put down roots in this community so that we can grow an impact in this community for good, for God's glory and for the good of people. But here's what I want you to hear. This is what I'm jealous for. I, I'm jealous for your heart. I'm jealous for your heart. Paul told the Corinthians to give because when they gave, it would be for their benefit that they would actually benefit from the process of sacrificial, joyful um, giving. And, um, and I've seen that. I mean, over the last couple, last month, just conversations with people, I, I'm seeing the benefit. And, and, and people are being changed, and people are being freed, and, and people are experiencing greater levels of joy. And, and I want you to join that. I want you to be part of it, right? It's awesome that we're moving ahead, but I want you to have some skin in the game. Because when you have skin in the game, you own the victory. You, you share in the joy in a very different way than somebody who's just a spectator. So maybe you haven't given for a number of reasons. Maybe it's because of a personal or financial hardship. Maybe it's because you thought your gift would be too small. I want to remind you, it's about equal sacrifice, not equal giving. I mean, some people could seriously, seriously only maybe commit to $36 over three years. That's $1 a month for three, for three years. If that's the most, God bless you. That's awesome. Jump in. You know what I'm saying? Like, like God is going to meet you in that. If that's your step of faith in moving out to sacrificially give, then do it, right? As your pastor, I am jealous for your heart. I want you to be involved in this historic moment of our church, and I want you to share in the benefit because you will benefit as you take a step of faith. God will grow your faith. Now, some of you have, have tasted this over the last couple of, of weeks, the last month and a half. And so um, there are three things that I, in response that I'm going to ask us to do. You have some three-by-five cards in your bulletin. Here, I'm going to give you three options with these things. The first, if God has um, impacted your heart through this series, the Get Greedy series, the Capital Campaign series, and I know because I've had some of you look at me and basically say, Steve, thank you. I am giving more than I have ever given. Uh-huh. 
and I'm excited about it, that's a, that's a testimony of grace, right? That's a story of grace. If you have a story of grace where God has gripped you and moved you to a new level of generosity or is freeing you up in some beautiful ways, I want to hear your story, right? This is a historic moment in the life of a ch- our church, and I'd like to chronicle some of those stories, honestly, because what we're doing is going to impact this community for decades, and I would love for people to be able to look back and not just say, oh, hey, great, we got a building. I want them to look back and see a heritage of, of, of people being transformed by the gospel so that it can inspire ongoing gospel transformation. So if you have a story of grace, I would love for you to share it. You don't have to write the whole thing out on the, on the three by five card. What I would like you to do is put your name and your email or possibly the best way to get a hold of you if it's not email. What we'll do is we'll contact you uh, to simply get your story, okay? We'll give you a way to share that story with us because we want to hear it. Um, the second thing that we would like you to do is, is potentially if there's some other way that God has freed you up that you want to celebrate, that you want to thank God for, and you would like us to join you in that Thanksgiving, I want you to write it on that card. You can put your name on it or you can keep it anonymous. It, that's up to you. But we would love to praise God with you. If God is delivering you into freedom in key ways in your life, freeing you from, from financial bondage or from bitterness or from whatever it is, whatever way God is freeing up your heart, if there's something that, that you want to celebrate, We would love to celebrate it with you. So I'm giving you the opportunity to write that on the card. The third thing is if over the course of this sermon and over the course of this morning, God has been putting on your heart an area that He wants you to move into freedom, but you haven't yet. If there's an area where where God is calling you to renounce worldliness, worldly, worldly passions and ungodliness, whatever that is, whatever that looks like for you, and move you into freedom. Maybe you don't even know how to take the first step Maybe the first step is simply writing it on the card so that we can pray with you about it. I want you to write if there's a key area that you feel like God is calling you to freedom. I want you to write that on there, okay? Again, you can put your name on there if you want. You don't have to. You can keep it anonymous. We'll pray for you either way. But if you have a, a, a story of grace, give us your name and your email or, or the best way to contact you. If there's, if there's a way that God has already been freeing up your heart um, and you want to share that, um, in, in, that's not a you know, giving testimony, we want to hear that. If there's a way that God is calling you that He wants you, if He's telling you, this is how I want to move you to freedom, or He's calling you, man, I want you to, and you're maybe even scared to even look at it because you don't even know what freedom looks like in that area, write it down because we want to pray with you. You have a God who has redeemed and is restoring. And in this period of tension, in this period of difficulty, He is setting us free. He is changing our hearts. And the God who raised Jesus from the dead is the God that can set you free. So I'm going to encourage you to step out in faith. Let's move. Let's grab this thing and move toward freedom, okay? Um, We'll have response cards up front, or boxes up front. We want you to drop your three-by-five cards in those when you come up for communion. We'll take communion in a moment, okay? So during our response time, feel free to to work on those those three-by-five cards. Let me pray for us. We'll go into our time of response. Father, I thank you that you are God. And not only are you God, but you invite us to call you Father. That you long for intimacy with us. You long for our good. You long to bless us. Not because we're the center of the world, (laughs) but because your glory is. And you are such a humble, good, and loving God. You want us to delight in you. What an astounding thought. We have a humble God. A God that we've offended and rebelled against, but invites us back into the embrace of love and family. Because you took your shame 
we can stand in your dignity. Thank you. Break our hearts in love as a response to the love that you've demonstrated to us. God, change us to be a people that are moved in generosity, that are defined by joy, that love grace. For your glory, for our good.